is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand, welcome to the program. Today we head to the Kimberley where the main highway is still cut because of flooding and local businesses across that region are doing it tough. We're all in it together and I feel most for the people in Fitzroy that have been affected with their houses and their cattle and all their infrastructure but um, you know, we're sort of indirectly we're, we're feeling it as well. And if you've never tried a longan before, well, no excuses. They're in season and tasting beautiful, according to growers. The botanical name is Euphoria longana. Now, Euphoria really aptly describes the, uh, the flavour of the longan. What does Euphoria taste like? We find out today on the Country Hour. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. We start today's program having a conversation with respected livestock analyst Simon Quilty. Now, Simon believes Meat and Livestock Australia has grossly overstated the size of the nation's cattle herd by about 3 million head. You'll remember last week, MLA came out projecting Australia's cattle herd would hit almost 29 million head this year, making it the biggest herd size in almost a decade. But Simon Quilty believes the numbers don't make sense and that MLA's mistake could be costly. I find them deeply concerning simply because I don't believe them. They have overstated the size of the Australian herd by 3 million head um, per year over the next three years. And simply, those animals do not exist. What makes you say that? Well, first of all, you start with the starting point of their forecast, which was 2022. And we have hard numbers saying for that period that the 2022 numbers, in terms of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the ABS, saw a 0.13% decline. The MLA numbers lay claim to a 6% increase. So right from the get-go, the numbers are wrong. And they've got the MLA numbers, they've got a 27.5 million. But in reality, they should be probably closer to 25.5 million. So let's start at the right starting point to begin with before even trying to forecast the following three years. And why are you more confident in the ABS numbers than MLA's numbers? Because they're, because they're hard numbers. ABS uh, do this survey every five years. We have the census in which 125,000 farmers are surveyed. And every in-between years, we have a 25,000 head survey across Australia. So I'm very confident the ABS numbers are right. And in terms of state by state, where they have the levels, they make perfect sense to me, knowing full well the female kill ratios that are going on and the changes in land use that are dramatically happening across Australia. You believe this forecast by MLA and the slaughter numbers at the moment don't kind of add up. Can you explain that to us? So when you have a herd of a certain size, it lends itself to a certain ratio of numbers to be killed. Obviously, the bigger the herd, 
the bigger the numbers to be killed. The strange thing is about these forecasts is that their slaughter rate I agree with, but that comes from a much lower herd, a three million less lower herd. So just simple ratios. This is basic arithmetic, and those slaughter ratios they have are too low. They do not reflect anywhere near what the slaughter ratio should be with such a large herd, in particular in 2025 at 29.5 million. And Matt, this is my concern, that it relays to the rest of the world the wrong information about Australia. It would imply to our buyers around the world that there is a wall of meat coming out of Australia, and that is not true. It will also give the wrong message to our farmers in Australia that there is going to be an avalanche of cattle once the conditions turn dry, which is very much likely this year. And once again, that is not true. In both instances, we are relaying as a country the wrong information internally and externally. I spoke to another analyst who felt that with the female slaughter ratio sitting at 43%, he felt that MLA's numbers could be feasible. What do you think of that? I think that's grossly inaccurate. In actual fact, when you look at Queensland itself, Queensland is the engine room of Australia's beef industry. And we've seen that now for the second year in a row, its rate of rebuild has actually gone down. So it was at 2.1% in the previous year's figures, and in 2022, it fell to 2%. And there are a myriad of reasons why you might say the engine room of Australia, Queensland, is spluttering. By that I mean it is desperately trying to get going, but it can't. The main reason is because in 2020, there was an enormous exodus of cattle out of Queensland into New South Wales. As New South Wales tried to rebuild by begging and borrowing and stealing every animal around this country to try and quickly rebuild after the devastating drought of 2018 and 19. So the first thing is that Queensland had an exodus of cattle in 2020, and a lot of it mainly were females. Secondly, a lot of regional marginal areas of New South Wales today are being uh, taken over by sheep and goats. Exclusion fencings played a crucial role, and the 2022 figures show a 35% increase in sheep numbers in Queensland alone, Matt. So there are numerous reasons why we've seen Queensland really slow down in its rebuild. The last reason is in 2020, 4 million hectares in Queensland alone went out of grazing. And you touched on it a bit earlier, but at the end of the day, if MLA's forecast was for 26 million head instead of closer to 29 million head, why would that matter? Because it's the messages we relay to people making decisions. So our buyers in Japan, Korea, China, America, they all look at these numbers. 
And the first thing they would do when they see 29 to 29 and a half million head herd is believe that that will follow with an enormous amount of beef. And they're true in thinking that because we saw that back in 2013, 14 and 15, where as a country, we slaughtered anywhere between nine to almost 10 million head in that period. But in reality, we're not going to even get close to that. We're going to slaughter probably about seven and a quarter million head. So there is a two million head difference just in slaughterings alone. But that would tell the world to stop buying forward. And that is crucial for long-fed programs, for Wagyu producers, for Angus producers, animals that are on long-fed programs the processes require the ability to sell forward to offset risk. And that is going to be taken away from them because our buyers will see it's better to buy hand to mouth. It's better not to go out and buy too much in front because things are going to get cheaper. That's the message they're giving around the world. That is Simon Quilty from Global Agritrends. Now, I've spoken to a few other analysts about this. And yes, some agree with Simon Quilty and say the numbers don't seem to add up and others feel the MLA numbers could be feasible. I think everyone agrees that getting these numbers correct can be challenging. Hi, my name's Savannah Phillip. I work at Humpty Doo Barramundi. We're currently feeding thousands of baby Barramundi right now and you're listening to The Country Hour. The Royal Flying Doctor Service has today released its Best for the Bush report and there's some sad numbers in it regarding the health of those living in rural and regional Australia. For example, the average life expectancy for women living in remote areas is now 19 years below their city counterparts. RFDS Executive Director Frank Quinlan says the government needs to act now as part of its Medicare reform. Look, I think the thing that most stands out for us is really the fairly simple proposition that the further you live from a metropolitan centre, the poorer your health is likely to be, the shorter your life expectancy, the higher your mortality rate. And that really culminates in the most remotest parts of Australia where uh, females are likely to die 19 years earlier than their city counterparts and males uh, nearly 14 years earlier than their uh, city counterparts and what we what we know from our, our aeromedical retrieval data is that similarly the further that you live from a metropolitan center the more likely it is that you will be taken to hospital uh, and admitted to hospital because of a preventative uh, a, a preventable illness so something that uh, you're ill with but that with the right early intervention could have been uh, prevented what's going on with women in the bush why are they uh, likely to die 19 years earlier than their city counterpart? Look, it's a very complex set of factors and we wouldn't claim to have all of the answers. Mm -hmm. But we know that there are um, lifestyle issues. So we know that um, different people have different access to healthcare, have different uh, access to exercise, have different access to diet and to medication and to management of conditions and so forth. So it's a complex picture. But we did do a little bit of a natural experiment, really, through COVID. It was forced upon us. 
And what we found uh, during COVID is that a lot of uh, primary health measures uh, were interrupted because communities necessarily had to shut down in order to protect themselves from the virus or clinicians were unable to practice because, it, it, for instance, in dental care, it might have just been too risky in those early days of the crisis. Uh, so a lot of people missed out on uh, primary health care and missed out on some of the routine management of their conditions. And what we find now coming out of the COVID immediate crisis anyway is that uh, that we, we've seen an increase of 25% in what we call our priority one aeromedical retrievals. So what that means is the people that we're encountering in the bush now are sicker than they would have been prior to the uh, COVID pandemic. And I think what that tells us very clearly is that all of those things that we routinely do around primary health and primary uh, care uh, are effective at uh, preventing uh, illness in the first instance, or uh, prevent or, or or stop illness getting severe uh, once once it is detected. So, is the RFDS able to manage that influx in priority one cases? That's alarming. It's it's very alarming, and we prioritise aeromedical retrievals, of course. So people can be assured that, uh, as we describe it, there is a mantle of safety, a mantle of protection. That means uh, people will be uh, delivered to tertiary hospitals as and when they're required. But uh, sort of somewhat perversely, what that means is that uh, we're potentially less able to focus on the early intervention and prevention activities that stop that crisis from developing. So part of the reason for publishing the report today is really to say to government, who's in the midst of looking at a reform of the health system and in particular reform of the Medicare system, to say to governments, whether it's the Royal Flying Doctor Service or whether it's an Aboriginal Controlled Medical Centre or some other service, we need to shift the focus towards early intervention and prevention because it's effective and because it works and because it stops people from becoming more seriously ill. Your studies also found, though, that more than 44,000 people in remote areas of Australia have no access to any type of primary healthcare service within one hour's drive. Now, most people in the bush are, are very familiar with having to drive more than an hour to medical help. But why, why did you need to highlight this? Look, the Institute of Health and Welfare... Uh, used the one-hour drive time as one way of measuring what might be called reasonable access. So if we ask ourselves the question, what does reasonable access to healthcare look like? That's actually a pretty complicated question. A one-hour drive time is one way of looking at it. But we also know, for instance, that uh, across the board, there are a whole lot of other things that can have an impact, even even quite close to metropolitan centres. So do people have access to public transport? Can people afford the services that are close by? Do the services that are close by actually have the clinicians that people need? Uh, are these services distributed appropriately across different parts of the country? So what we're recommending in this report is that together with governments, uh, the both the Australian government and state and territory governments, we'd like to have a discussion about what reasonable access might properly mean because uh, telehealth measures, for instance, uh, allow us to deliver some things into remote communities, um, but other things are much better dealt with face-to-face. -face. We need to, I think, have a bit of a shared definition 
about what reasonable access to, to care is so that we can then go to those governments and say, okay, well, if we're going to manage heart disease, this is what needs to be provided. If we're going to manage diabetes, this is what needs to be provided so that people are getting the right care at the right time and we can prioritise our very limited resources. By what you're defining as reasonable access, would you like mandates around that definition so that it makes very clear which areas of our country aren't able to access primary health care? Yes. So we, we'd like some pretty clear definitions that say, okay, for, for a typical citizen in general or perhaps even for particular target groups that we consider to be at risk, this is what a picture of services look like. This is the sort of early intervention and screening that we could expect people to have access to. These are the sorts of mental health services that we would expect people to have access to. These are the sorts of dental care services that we'd expect people to have access to because dentist, dental care is a, a huge issue and has impacts on lots of other health concerns. So that we can then use that set of definitions as the basis for planning and we can allocate our limited resources to areas where there is the greatest need. Frank Quinlan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service speaking there to Amy Phillips. You can learn more about this story up on the ABC Rural website right now. And that article contains a link to the Best for the Bush report, which is out today by the RFDS. I've got a text here from someone who's not too sure about these numbers. They say, yeah, nah, can't believe those ages. A 20-year difference, more dodgy numbers. Reckon someone here on the text, 0487 991057. That story up on the ABC Rural website. Go and check it out. Speaking of reports, the Grattan Institute's got one out, and it suggests that federal labour could save billions of dollars by halving the fuel tax credit. The leader of the Nationals, David Littleproud, doesn't like it. He wants Labor to rule out such a move, saying that it would hurt farmers and consumers. Federal Ag Minister Murray Watt, well, he says it's not on his agenda at all. There will be no changes in the May budget. End of story. No, we're not. This is just more nonsense from David Littleproud. I'm sort of getting a bit used to it, really. Um, this guy seems to wake up every day and think about what he can throw at the wall and see if it sticks and this is just his latest one so I can categorically tell your listeners that this is not on our agenda we're not working on it we're not considering it it's just nonsense from David Littleproud. All right so it's not going to be reduced it's not going to be halved it's not going to be anything like that? No there are no changes to the fuel tax credit which are on our agenda at all so one of these days David Littleproud will start thinking about facts and talk about reality but uh, it doesn't look like it's going to come anytime soon. Is the fuel tax credit, though, an issue in, in terms of subsidising what is a, a, a fossil fuel emitting uh, way of uh, moving things around the country? Well, I realise that there are different views on this, and obviously the Grattan Institute has put up their views, uh, and you know there are people who disagree with them. Um, obviously, our government is taking strong action on climate change in general, with much stronger targets than the former government had in place, and... Obviously, recently, we're in Gladstone announcing changes to the safeguards mechanism, which are, is all about working with heavy industry to reduce the emissions they create. So we do have a range of measures in place uh, to take stronger action on climate change and reduce emissions, but this is not one of them. Do you think the fuel tax credit is going to need to be reformed at some point? Oh, look, I'm, I'm not going to sort of speculate about the future. All I can talk about is what our current plans are and what this government is planning to do, and, and this is not something that is on our agenda. Um, and I think what we've preferred to do is to take an economy-wide approach to dealing with climate change. 
uh, unfortunately, the likes of David Littleproud and all of his colleagues never did anything on climate change. And what that's actually meant is that farmers are losing money. Uh, the Department of Agriculture federally, our research organisation, has come up with evidence that over the last 20 years, due to changes to seasons, due to climate change, the average farm profits uh, have fallen by about 23%. So farmers are literally paying a price for climate change, let alone uh, the rest of the community. Uh, and that is why we need to take action. Uh, but we need to take sensible action and we need to work with industry in doing so. The argument is if you, if you reduce the fuel tax credit or got rid of it, uh, say in the mining, uh, say in the agriculture space, it would, it would then incentivise you to pursue uh, lower emission technologies for, for your vehicles on, on farm. Is there a different way the federal government should be doing that then? Well, we, we've obviously put in place a, a range of measures to uh, encourage the uptake of electric vehicles, and that is mostly happening uh, at the kind of consumer passenger-type vehicles at the moment. But I've seen uh, some of the farm machinery that's being created now uh, that is increasingly electric, or in some cases they're working towards hydrogen. So we are going to be, you know, over time looking at continuing those sorts of incentives to in- in- encourage uh, the uptake of those types of vehicles. But as I say, the sort of thing that David Littleproud is talking about is just not on our agenda at all. All right. So just to be very clear about this, the federal budget in May, there will be no changes to the fuel tax credit. Correct. There's no no changes uh, on our agenda at all. Uh, but what will be in the uh, May budget is a lot more support for agriculture like we did last year. You know, strong biosecurity, uh, helping farmers get the workforce that they need, those free trade agreements that we've signed coming into force and opening up new markets for farmers fee-free taste places for agriculture to help train locals in agriculture and many other things as well. They're the real things that are happening under the Albanese government, not just the uh, the dreamland of David Littleproud. That's the Federal Ag Minister, Murray Watt, speaking there to Paul Culliver. Right across the Territory on the ABC, this is The Country Hour. Our text number is 0487 Got a questionnaire from someone who says... Generic question, Matt, is Landline now 30 minutes? No, it's not 30 minutes. Actually, big news, Landline is back this Sunday. First episode for 2023 on your TV from 12.30 on Sunday. It goes for an hour, an hour of goodness. And, of course, if you miss it, you can catch it via ABC iView. There's perhaps a chance you've been seeing some of the summer programming where they like to play little snippets of some of the best stuff from Landline. But no, it's back episode one this Sunday. And make sure you keep an eye out for The Market Report. How good's The Market Report? Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. G'day, I'm Brad Inglis from Sturt Plain Station, south of Dunmara on the Stuart Highway and you're listening to the NT Country Hour. Australia's biggest performance horse sale has wrapped up in Tamworth and once again some seriously big dollars have been forked out. The top price was $400,000 for a single mare. There were some other horses that fetched over $200,000 each. This is big money. Mike Rowland from Nutrient Equine 
mix that all up. It was an amazing weekend and some amazing results. We, we sold 110 horses less here this year, or offered 110 horses less, I should say, here this year than what we did last. And, and part of that is all about uh, a secondary sale that we've now set up uh, in September, which is all about the open age horses. So we've, we, we took less open age horses into this event this year for the very reason of being able to create uh, this brand new event in, in uh, September where they'll, they'll be camp drafting for the, the open age horses, um, competing for big purses there and, and uh, a sale. But even with those 110 less horses, would you believe we grossed more than we did last year? It's, it was Gosh. a phenomenal sale. 17 million and 92,000 was where we finished last night. And indeed, I know there's some deals being done to finalise some of those horses yet. So we will see that grow. The, the average price this year, $32,680 in comparison to $26,900 last year. So it's got a, it, it augurs beautifully from the industry's perspective, but more importantly, it gives breeders the, the faith that they're looking in the right directions, that people you know, are really chasing their stock. That is Mike Rowland from Nutrien Equine. This sale in Tamworth, grossing more than $17 million. There were a few Territorians there as well, buying and selling. And for me, the NT headline from the sale was the team at Mount Riddick Station there in Central Australia who forked out $210,000 to buy a stallion called Regent. It's a stallion out of Metallic Rebel. If you're into camp drafting, that name will be familiar. But $210,000, that is a lot of dough. We'll try and catch up with the team at Matt Riddick this week, actually. Can you imagine how nervous you would be putting that horse onto the float to take home to the Northern Territory? Oh, you'd want to put the whole thing in bubble wrap at that kind of money. Uh, we are approaching the 1 o'clock news and then in five minutes' time having a chat to the Weather Bureau. If you've got a question... For the Bureau, send it through on the text 0487 1057. I've already got one here from Greg in Karama who says, Matt, how are we looking for another monsoonal burst this month? Mm, they got a little bit hot in downtown Darwin yesterday. The clouds have disappeared for a little bit. Hopefully, there's some good news on its way. Thank you for the question, Greg. We'll be putting that to the Bureau. And if you'd like to shove a question in the list as well. That number is 0487 1057 I'll see you back here in five minutes. Uh, g'day, this is Vin Yuen from TV Farms in Sydney Markets and you're listening to The Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, we'll be heading to the Kimberley where the main highway, the only highway, is still cut and local businesses right across that region are doing it tough. We're all in it together and I feel most for the people in Fitzroy that have been affected with their houses and their cattle and all their infrastructure, but um, you know, we're sort of indirectly, we're, we're feeling it as well. And we'll also tuck into some juicy, fresh Territory longings. Plenty to look forward to in the second half of the country hour. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Moses Rako is there this afternoon. You a fan of longings? Moses? 
I'm not sh- Just remind me what they are again. No, fair <laughs> enough, mate. Fair enough. So Longan's little tropical fruit, they're little, little and brown, and you open them up and it's that translucent flesh that you would get with, say, a lychee or a rambutan. Ah, they're in yes. that family. Mm. A little bit like grapes. Yeah. No, I remember them. Yes, they, uh, they do like them. Um, you know, you've, you've got to hunt them down. They're not everywhere. Um, I have seen one major supermarket selling a few, um, but um, it's the local markets around Darwin. That's your best bet if you're a massive Longan fan. Oh, that's good to um, know. But everyone needs to try one. You've got to try these things, don't you? Um, it was a fairly, fairly standard sort of weekend, not too much to report, but tell us about the week ahead, especially when it comes to potential rainfall. Okay, let's start in the short term. So at the moment, we've had a trough across uh, the, basically moved through the top end over the weekend and it's kind of extending across close to the north coast at the moment. Um, we're kind of seeing some dr- relatively dry air above the surface push into the top end. So it's keeping things relatively quiet apart from the northern parts of the top end today. In the south though, Matt, we've actually seen a trough that was over Queensland or inland Queensland it's moving closer into the NT or closer to the NT Queensland border, probably shifting into the NT during the day today. Um, that, uh, I guess, a consequence of that feature moving into the NT is helping to see the increasing chance of showers and storms down the, the NT Queensland border. And as I speak, um, there are some showers and storms developing um, uh, yeah, just like, uh, near just, that area. Yeah, on the radar, it would suggest that, say, Avon Downs cattle station is getting some rain this afternoon. That's right. Um, And basically that boundary of those showers and storms is going to extend further west into the central and southern districts um, as we head into tomorrow and then Wednesday as well. Uh, The focus of that rainfall will be around the trough um, and probably seeing the southeastern parts of the Barkley, northeastern parts of the Simpson districts will probably see some some chance of some, some better falls. But the chance of showers and storms are going to extend further west um, over the next couple of days. Outside of that cloud band, we are expecting those temperatures to gradually creep up, and we've already seen that um, playing out today. Um, those temperatures just creeping up several degrees each day, um, probably hitting the 40-degree mark over the southwestern parts of the Territory probably by Wednesday. Um, but of course, where those showers and storms are, um, probably seeing those cooler temperatures with all that cloud cover and rainfall there. Um, once once that takes place in the south, we're probably seeing another ridge slowly start to build across central Australia again later this week. So we might see some clearance starting to push in from the south up into parts of the central districts um, by the end of the week. Um, still seeing those showers and storms though over the that um, you know, Gregory Carpentieri though may persist into this week. The other interesting point to make is across the Arafura Sea at the moment. Yes, um, we are seeing generally those winds have eased off from the end of last week. Um, we are expecting though that those westerly winds um, starting to pick up. So a monsoonal burst probably starting to develop later this week. Um, and extending into the weekend. Um, so 
as a consequence of that, probably seeing, you know, chance of showers and storms starting to pick up again um, uh, across the top end. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, I think that's that. answered Greg from Karama's question then. He wanted to know how we were looking for another monsoonal burst. Could be as early as later in the week, weekend. Yeah, so gradually, even from maybe Thursday potentially, just starting to see those winds pick up um, uh, Wednesday or Thursday, and then, yeah, we'll probably see um, those winds increase further again um, over the weekend. Uh, And basically, you know, return of moisture and the like, um, uh, expecting to, to see definitely the northern parts of the top end being impacted by that westerly flow or north coast um, and it looks as though of course you know um, as that develops we may see the development of, of of a monsoon trough develop somewhere over the top end at this stage probably near the north coast but look um, it is a, a, a while away mm-hmm. yeah. um, but nonetheless um, it does look like uh, chances of showers and storms do increase um, later this <coughs> later this week over the uh, top end All right then, Moses. A big week ahead. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. And just before you go, one last thing to note. Um, Those thunderstorms near the NT Queensland border, um, just be mindful over that next couple of days. Um, We could see some heavy falls with those thunderstorms, so just keep an eye on our website if there are any warnings. You might need to bring back your flood watches. Mm. Uh, Well, at this stage, um, not at the moment, but um, just definitely the chance of seeing some severe thunderstorm uh, warnings is is on the cards potentially. Thanks so much Moses appreciate it. Thanks Matt Today I'm Steve Beattie from Road Trains of Australia I've been working for RTA as a truck driver and in management since 1987 and when I'm out on the road in the truck or in my car I tune into the country out An interesting week ahead weather-wise by the sounds of things. Uh, Let's head to the Kimberley region of WA, which, as you know, is having a big wet season. I can tell you that Lake Argyle started overflowing on the weekends. First time that's happened since 2017. And, of course, in the Fitzroy Valley, a lot of hard work still to be done in terms of fixing roads, repairing bridges... And just getting Highway 1 back into action after those big floods last month. Russell Cook, he runs several businesses out of Kununurra, including a livestock supplement company. He relies on that highway to access supplies and also to sell product to customers and says the delays to fixing Highway 1 are proving costly. I was actually on holidays and saw the bridge and the drop in the middle of it. And my initial thoughts were, oh jeepers, this is going to cause us a bit of pain. You know, the pain of all the livestock losses, because a lot of my friends are over there. And the livestock and the property damage was the initial thought. And then turned, maybe selfishly to ourselves, but you know, this is our main supply chain and our main sales route for our supplement business. Plus, we'd sold cattle to Kimberley Meat Company in a Ford contract and then my wife's got a turf business which 75% of her sales go between Broome and Port Hedland so uh, we got ourselves fairly wound up and we still don't really have a plan on how we're going to get through the year. So we'll start with your feed business. How much do you rely on the Great Northern Highway for your supply and then also to get that to your customers? 
So 50% of our product comes from the western side of the Fitzroy Bridge, but without those other 50% we can't make anything. So really we 100% rely on the Great Northern supply chain to mix product and 25% of our sales for that business are on the other side of that bridge between the West Kimberley and the Pilbara our customers are for that for that business yeah so if the bridge is out for a while how are you planning or what options do you have to service those customers and to get supplies in to make your product the short answer is I don't really know yet we're sort of still trying to evaluate all our options and work out where we can source other commodities from within Australia Um, an example of salt is being one of our main ingredients. We get about 4,000 tonnes of salt from Port Hedland, which is our closest salt provider, and it's 1,600 k's away. The next closest that we could get quoted so far is from Bejewel in Queensland, and it's 3,200 kilometres. Not only has he got to go double the distance, being an extra 1,600 k's, he's also got to do a dog run. So I got a quote for him for freight, and it was 266% more expensive to do from Bejewel. That's the sort of thing we're up against. You know, we get our canola meal from Pinjarra. We've really based our business on our supply chain of WA. Yeah, so we're still very much working out how we can produce a finished product for the east side of the bridge. As far as the west side, we have got customers in the Pilbara. We've had all that rain in the Kimberley, but we've got customers in the Pilbara that still haven't had enough rain, and they rely on us to help them keep their cattle in good condition and productive. So we've actually brought... A product that we import into Darwin, we truck that down to Williams, south of Perth, and we're mixing it there in a very, it's definitely not an automated situation, very very manual, but we're getting product mixed and getting it back up to the Pilbara. Obviously that's coming at a very high expense, but our, it's important to us that we keep our customers in product. They've entrusted us to keep supplement up to them, so it's, that's what we've done to keep, keep them going and so it's, yeah, it's, it's affected us on um, all fronts and quite honestly, some days we just don't, don't know where to turn mm. or what, what, to, uh, what to think. How are you going? It must be such a stressful start to the year. How, how are you managing it and how's everyone in the community going? Yeah, well, I was on holidays and living it up, I thought, but uh, it's <laughs> turned around a bit and not sure I've been a pleasure to live with for the last few weeks. But, I mean, we will be okay. If you keep trying and keep turning things over, good things will come of it. Kununurra is, we're a tight little community. We're all in it together and I feel most for the people in Fitzroy that have been affected with their houses and their cattle and all their infrastructure. But, um, you know, we're sort of indirectly, we're, we're feeling it as well. That is Russell Cook from Red Range Stock Supplements speaking there to Steph Sinclair. I know Rusty's got a lot of customers here in the Northern Territory and... Sounds like a, a very challenging time ahead. A challenging time for many in that Kimberley region. Christian Blocker, he grows melons, pumpkins, all kinds of fresh produce in the Ord and has long-term commitments to supply customers in Perth. He says picking normally starts in May and he hopes the highway can be ready by then. We understand that it takes time to get these things sorted at government level down in Perth, but... We're hoping to get a response sooner rather than later because we need to make plans as well. So at the moment, our plans are to have a a season as normal. The last couple of years with COVID have been difficult up here as well and we've figured it out. So I'm assuming this year will be no different. We'll figure it out. 
but it's obviously going to be easier if we have a, a road directly to Perth in WA and if there's some sort of assistance from the government in terms of a freight subsidy. The government is working on getting that uh, a solution to that road at the moment. They're talking of barges being a temporary solution and then that permanent solution might be some time away. What concerns do you have about uh, the timeline that we're dealing with with that road and getting it back up to normal? Generally, anything government-related isn't quick. And so we've been trying to stress that the importance of timeliness, that things have to go a lot quicker than what they normally do. The timelines around the bridge, that, that'll take years to sort that out. But once, yeah, whenever the Fitzroy does go low enough that we can get a low-level crossing in, we're hoping that by the time we start picking in May, like we normally do, there'll be something sorted there in Fitzroy. Uh, if that government support takes some time or it doesn't come through at all, with these costs, those additional freight costs, something that your business and other businesses will be able to get through, will be able to wear? Uh, we're working on the assumption that the government will come to the party and help out with a freight subsidy because you would think that they would support a community in WA. So I think it'll happen. It's just a matter of time. And I imagine you've never seen anything like this before. You've never been impacted by the road being out for so long in your time as a farmer in the Ord. We plan with having having the road you know, being cut off for a couple of weeks on end because that's normal in the wet season, but not you can't plan on a whole bridge missing. So that's slightly changed the scenario analysis that mm. we've done. The bridge being washed away at Fitzroy probably points to a bigger conversation around the road network as it is because having single lane bridges on the only highway that goes through this area or around the north you know, shouldn't still exist in 2023. As Christian Blocker, who farms in the Ord Irrigation Scheme. He was speaking to Steph Sinclair. And you can read more about this up on the ABC Rural website, including some pictures that are coming out of that region of the Fitzroy River and some of the damage. It's unbelievable. It's awful. As I said, you can see it for yourself via ABC Rural. G'day, my name is Neville Namanyuk. I'm a tour guide in Kilda National Park, and this is Country House. Just quickly to some resources news. The company that's running that new lithium mine out near Darwin has appointed a new chief financial officer. So Doug Warden will be the new CFO for Core Lithium and is set to begin in that role in April. Most recently, Mr Warden was the CFO of Resolute Mining and Luca Resources. And according to Core Lithium, he brings... More than 30 years of experience in managing financial functions of complex businesses and has held senior financial, commercial and leadership roles in the resources, agriculture and professional services sectors. So Doug Warden, the new Chief Financial Officer for Corp, as we go to air this afternoon, shares in Core Lithium are down by 4.4%. Now, I'm not too sure if you've ever tasted a longan or not. Maybe you've got a longan tree in the backyard. Apparently, it has been a great season for these little tropical fruits. 
Now, just to remind you, Longans, they're in the same family as lychees and rambutans. And at Chris Nathaniel's orchard in Darwin's rural area, well, he's having a great season. He reckons his trees have produced around 12 tonnes this year. Victoria Ellis went along to see the crop and picked some Longans with Chris. Sometimes they're a little bit hard to, uh, to reach at that height. But they're, uh, they're a beautiful size. Look at that. Uh, Chris and Nathaniel, Tropiculture Australia. Uh, we are looking at some uh, longans. I was expecting them to be the sizes of a plum, but they're a little bit smaller, and you showed me how to open them. You give them a little squeeze. It kind of pops the skin open. It's got a beautiful white, juicy flesh, and then you eat that away, and you're left with uh, a little black seed about the size of a blueberry. How would you describe the taste? Uh, well, the... The botanical name is Euphoria, Euphoria longana. Now, Euphoria really aptly describes the uh, the flavour of the longan. What does Euphoria taste well, like? Well, it's it's it gives you this um, pleasant lift when you're when you're eating them, and quite frankly, you can't stop eating them. But they're they're really quite delicious. You've got this uh, sugar flow hit. And you've got that um, um, slight flavour, which um, it gives you that lift, and that that's euphoria. Delightful! And you've had a pretty good season so far with the longans. Ah, uh, yes, it's been uh, it's been a while. We neglected them for quite a number of years uh, because of obviously reasons. We were um, short of cash to. Uh, uh, re-established their orchard so um, what has happened is this year we did look after them a little bit better but in addition to that the um, dry season was just right now we do they do require a slightly cooler dry season for them to induce the flowering and uh, we got that in addition to that, we, we did fertilise uh, generously and uh, this is what we've got. Bunch in front of you there, at least two kilos. One and, bunch. And how many bunches are there per tree? Well, this tree here, I would estimate, uh, based on the one that we have partly denuded, um, I would say this one would have about uh, 600 kilos. And how many trees do you have? We've got about 20 trees left, yes. So 20 times 600 kilos, that's a, that's a lot of longans. That's a lot of longans, yes. And we really were not prepared because they were running a little bit late and uh, normally mid-January, is it? And we were not prepared uh, with sending any down to the southern states. We have had a request for two tonnes, but unfortunately it's too late now for us to uh, uh, gear up our operation to send. Uh, and any interstate. We are selling a lot locally um, and uh, the local market, uh, well organised, can handle around about a tonne of longings a year. And so what are you going to do with these ones that are left over then? Well, I'm going to give you some. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> and a few friends. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know. Share them with the birds, I guess. My heart is down and it is turning around. I had to leave a little girl in Kingston Town. 
Look at that, Tori. Beautiful. You can, uh, as you're eating them, you can, and share, sharing them with others, you can tell them that they were freshly picked. We will be better organised hopefully next year and when we will do a similar uh, project and uh, and have them all fruiting. Yep. Is that the sort of thing that you might be able to do a pick your own or do you not have like... Yes, well with the, um, the reseller, one reseller, we uh, suggested that she pick her own and we gave her a very generous price and uh, she was, uh, that's that first tree and as you can see there's still maybe three, four hundred kilos on the same tree. She did come and pick her own. And how do you actually pick them? What's the method? Well, the method is simply uh, you take a bunch like that, which I said it's well over two kilos, I think, and what you do is you cut the bunch. Um, you remove any off types, uh, uh, which are not too many, and then um, you, you cut as much of the stalk as possible. Uh, those that fall off are just sold separately. The little ones are disposed of, and uh, the others we just sell in bunches. What sort of things would you do with a longan? Like you could eat them just like I was doing before, like a little snack, or do people put them in salads, or how do you sort of eat them? Well, uh, you can buy them tinned and uh, without the seed, and the seed can be taken out very easily with a longan uh, because the flesh is quite firm, reasonably firm, and, and therefore you can hook, hook the seed out and you can have them without the seed. You can have them in salads, ideal for children's uh, lunch because you just break it up off the branch and you put a handful into the children's uh, um, lunchbox. lunchbox and so forth and they're absolutely, uh, the kids love them absolutely love them but not only the children but the adults the only thing that we found last saturday when we we had uh, 6000 people actually log on to our facebook page last saturday and uh, a lot of the people came down here not all but a lot had never tasted a longan and yet when i'm in southeast asia i put it to them because of my interest in longans growing here, um, of the rambutan, the lychee and the longan, which, which order do you, do you prefer or does your organisation uh, list them as? And it was lychee, longan and rambutan came last. So that's, that's a very interesting concept. So there's a lot of people that don't know longan, which is a pity because it is a beautiful fruit. Um, it's tasty. It's, euphoric, uh, sugary, like you were saying. It's euphoric. <laughs> you name it, it's here. And last time you spoke to the Country Hour about longans, you were telling us about some dwarf longans? Yes, we have. Uh, we have a little bit further on here. We've uh, recently planted another five uh, research longans, which we are looking at dwarf 
longans. We're working hard on that. It's going to take us another two, three years, but I, I believe we will have a dwarf longan. That is Chris Nathaniel of Tropiculture Australia speaking to Victoria Ellis, who is our new reporter here at the Country Hour. Welcome, Victoria. And they were talking about the longan season. It's on in the Northern Territory. If you're a fan or you're now just intrigued to try one of these little tropical treats, head along to a place like Rapid Creek Markets on a Sunday. That's where you're likely to find them. And they are beautiful. They're in season. That's all we've got time for on today's Country Hour. If you've missed any of the program, you can catch it via our podcast. Keep it rural.